Uh, we are in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Uh, the, Romans 12 is about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here at the beginning of the year, I thought it was important for us to reset our minds and hearts on what matters most uh, because that's what our goal is, is that each one of us would be true disciples of him. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice, to offer yourself in sacrifice to Christ? And I, I gave you a prayer at the beginning of this series when we were looking at Romans 12.1 that I suggested, you can use your own words, but something like this, that we should pray every day. Lord, I want to be completely yours. Whatever you ask of me, the answer is always Yes. And when that's your lifestyle, when that is the goal that drives you, it's going to make you seem a little strange, a little weird to your friends, including many of your Christian friends. Because sad to say, a lot of American Christianity is built around what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And this idea that, uh, that God owes us certain things, that we can, we can sort of manipulate God to get what we want. It's sort of like this. If you are hungry, you go to a restaurant. If you want to get in shape, you go to a gym. If you want to increase your, uh, your, your, your career success, you go back to school and you get another degree. If you want to be spiritually blessed, you go to a church so that uh, you have what amounts to good luck in your finances, in your career, in your family and their protection and, and in everything you hope to do. You're essentially using God to try to get the life you want. That's the Christianity, quote unquote Christianity, a lot of American Christians have bought into. When the actual biblical version is, no, Jesus said, follow me, I wanna follow him. I wanna become like him, I wanna serve him. I wanna, it's not about what he can do for me because he's already done way more than I could ever deserve. I want to serve him because of what he's already done and dying for my sins. I want to work alongside him in redeeming the world because that is a truly uh, abundant life. And the good news is when we do that, when we make that decision, it sounds like a sacrifice. It sounds like we're going to have less fun. But the truth is that's when we find the joy that we've been looking for in all of our selfish pursuits. I didn't make this analogy up, by the way, but if you're trying to be happy by chasing your own desires and, and goals and, and wants, it's like trying to catch a butterfly. You ever try that? Butterflies aren't fast, so they're always right there. You, they don't outrun you, but you just can't seem to get a hand on them. And that's happiness when we seek happiness through our own self-centered desires. We're, it's always close enough that we think we'll, we'll get it if we just get that one more thing, but we never quite get it. But instead, if instead we give ourselves to Jesus and we, we serve others in his name, that butterfly lands on us and we find, I have the joy now and the peace and the purpose that I've always wanted but never could get. And I'll give you a perfect example, okay? I'm, I'm a married man. Many of you are married. Uh, not all of you, but you, if, even, if you have, even if you're not, you've probably heard people say, men say, happy wife, happy life, right? You've heard that, say, that phrase? Now let me tell you where the truth is in that. Because what's not true is this idea that, man, if I can just get this battle axe of a woman off my back, then I'll be happy for a while. No, if, if that's your attitude, no wonder your wife's unhappy, okay? You're a terrible husband, let me just tell you. But where it is true is Ephesians 5 tells us that a husband's job is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Lay down his life for her. Put her first in all things. Seek to elevate her into the woman of God God created her to be. And I've learned in my own marriage that when I'm focused on all the things that I wish Carrie would do for me, I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy with her. I'm unhappy with me. But when instead I'm thinking in terms of 
hey, this is a really good woman God gave me. I'm going to do what I can to bless her and to be the husband she needs. Suddenly, not only is she happier, I'm happier. Because that's what God made us to be, is people who give ourselves away to others. When we do that in all of our relationships, not just marriage, then suddenly we have that joy, that abundant life that we've wanted. Now, can we admit that doesn't come naturally? None of us are that way by instinct. We need to be transformed. We need to become new people. Last week we saw that the, the first step to live as a living sacrifice, to give yourself away that way, is to, is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that means admitting the voices that are influencing you, the false voices of, uh, that, are, that are telling you things and guiding you in ways that aren't the, the path of life, to get rid of those and instead focus on the Word of God. And I hope this week some of you have started reading the Bible, maybe for the first time ever or for the first time in a long time. You've actually started reading the Scriptures for yourself. If you haven't and you want to start, we do still have copies of our New Testament reading plan at the welcome desk. You can pick one up on your way out. But that's not all you can do. That's not all you need to do. Uh, let me just say, as, as important as it, is, as it is for you to read the Word of God, if all you do is sit at home and read the Bible, you'll end up being really good at Bible trivia for all the good that'll do you, but you won't become a fully formed, growing disciple of Jesus. For that, you need more. You need more than just yourself. It's not something you can do alone. You need to be a contributing member of a local body of believers. In other words, you need to be an active part of a church. Now, some of you re rebel against that and say, yeah, but the church is so messed up and it's, it's burned me in the past and I, I, I'm doing good just to show up here on Sunday morning. Don't ask me to get involved because I, listen, there is nothing in the New Testament that indicates that it is in any way possible to be a disciple of Jesus without having a church. It's like saying, I want to be the best baseball player who ever lived. Oh, really? Well, what team are you going to play? I don't, I don't like teams. teams. Teams will always let you down. But who are you going to drive in? Who's going to drive you in? How, how are you going to win a game? By You can't. You can't be a disciple of Jesus on your own. You need a local body of believers. And that means more than sitting in a pew on Sunday morning and listening to a sermon. That means contributing to the work of God. So how do you do that? What does that mean? That's what I want to talk about today. Verses 3 through 8 of, of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though, who, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there are three things that I see there that are necessary for us to be fully formed contributing members of a congregation, and that will lead to us being true disciples of Jesus. And the first one, the first one's a little harsh, but I'm just going to say it. Get over yourself. That's the first one. Because as Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
but see yourself with sober judgment. Look at yourself realistically. And here's the story I like to tell when it comes to this. When, when our daughter Kaylee was three, three years old, she was a three-year-old that was very vocal, very verbal and, and eloquent. She could speak well for her age. And so we wrote down a lot of things that she said, and this is one of them. Uh, she was playing with a, a friend of hers that was her age, and, and Carrie was close enough she could overhear these two girls talking. And the other little girl was upset about something and she was whining and she was fussing and, and Kaylee interrupted her and said, you know, it's not always about you. Three years old. From the mouths of babes, all kinds of truth. I have been a pastor for over half my life. I've been in church my whole life. And I have seen and heard Christians do and say some of the most ridiculous things. Get upset over the most petty things you can imagine. Complain in the most uh, appalling ways. And I'm not going to tell you any of those stories today. I, I can say this. This is not me bemoaning my station in life. I love my job. I love my church. I would, I would rather do this. Listen, I wish you loved your job as much as I love my job. So this is not me complaining about y'all. I love what I do and I love y'all. But I also know this is what the text says for a reason. Because we as Christians can slide so easily into that phase where it's about us. Everything that we do, everything in church is about us. We are the consumer. After all, if I'm at a steakhouse and I order medium rare and they send it out well done, I'm within my rights to send it back, right? As long as I do it graciously and kindly to the waitress, well, you should do that. I'm not paying that much money for a steak that's like a, like a boot. I mean, I, I, want, I want a good piece of meat, right? Christians, you are not the customer here. You understand that, right? You're not the show. You're not the customer. You're not the client. You and I are fellow worshipers, fellow servants. That's what we're supposed to be. I had a, a colleague at my previous church, she was a woman who'd lived a very rough life before she got saved. And then she became a part-time minister in our church. And she had a, a very plain way of speaking. Sometimes if we were in staff meeting talking about so-and-so's angry or this group is upset and what are we going to do and how are we going to pacify them? And, and she would usually in moments like that say, hey, y'all, you know, people are dying and going to hell. Why are we talking about this? Good point. People are dying and going to hell all around us. Is this really what we should complain about? I think every one of us, and, and yes, there are times when we should speak negative words. If you ever become aware that there's false doctrine being taught in our church from the pulpit or anywhere else, if you become aware that I or any other leader in the church is acting in an ungodly way, unrepentantly acting in an ungodly way, if you're aware of people in our church who are being neglected or mistreated. Or if there's something we as a church are doing that's disgracing the name of Christ, by all means, please speak up. I also know that we're all sinners and we all have our little quirks. And sometimes each one of us is going to get a little negative sometimes. There's grace there. I'm not saying any of this because I'm mad at anybody. None of you owes me a, an apology for anything that I'm aware of. I'm saying... I'm saying before you say something negative to me or anybody, including your own family, just picture speaking to Jesus instead. 
Do you really think that after you shared whatever is on your heart, Jesus would say, yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I'm here to seek and to save the lost because I don't want anybody to spend eternity separated from God. But you know, that thing's important too. Probably not. About 95% of what we complain about isn't worth saying. So how do we get over ourselves? I think number one, we need to pray for humility. That's something I'm going to talk about in more detail when we get to verse 16, so I, I won't say anything more on that. But number two, what Paul says is learn to appreciate the other people in the church. This is why it's not enough to just sit in a pew on a Sunday morning. You have to get involved. You have to be in a life group. You have to, be, uh, you have, to have a group that you're investing in. You have to have a ministry that you're serving in. And when you do those things, you bump into people who aren't like you. Here's the great thing about a church. There are people in this room who in anywhere else in life, the two of you wouldn't be in the same group because you don't have anything in common. What you have in common is Christ died for your sins. And so when you spend time around those people, you realize, hey, they've got something to contribute as well. They're important. They're, they're valuable. And, and it, it humbles you. You realize it's not about me. It's about Jesus and what he's doing in the world. In verses four through five, Paul talks about it in terms of a body. That's the, the great metaphor that Paul and the New Testament uses for the church, the body of Christ. Can you imagine if your right eye went on strike one day? Your right eye is like, hey man, I'm, the best, I'm, I'm way better than that left eye. And without us, let's face it, your body would be absolutely blind. No, no lie. Well, that would hurt if your right eye just walked off the job. But it wouldn't be any good for your eye either, would it? Because what is an eye without a body? And I think there's a lot of Christians who are very, very unhappy today. And one of the reasons is that they may be in churches, they may be in the church pew every Sunday, but they have effectively cut themselves off from the rest of the body because they're convinced they know what's right and everyone else doesn't. So understand the importance of the body of Christ. Listen, I hope, I hope you're well-fed. I hope your needs are met. And seriously, if you're unhappy with something here, I don't mind hearing from you. Even if, even if deep down in my heart, I think, okay, that's not really worth complaining. I'm still going to love you. So feel free to talk to me. But instead of constantly asking, why aren't things the way I want them? Why, not, why don't we more often ask, what am I actually contributing? What am I actually bringing to the table? What how do I make our church a better church? How do I help us reach the world for Christ? I had a, a, a close friend who was the treasurer of his church, small church, so it was a volunteer position. He said, Jeff, you don't ever want to be the person who knows who gives what financially in a church. Because what you find out is the people who complain the loudest are the ones that give the least. So ask, what am I doing for the kingdom of God? It's not about you. It really isn't. Second thing, find your gifts. In verse 6, Paul writes, we each have gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. What is he talking about there? What gifts do we have? You know, we're all born with natural talents. Some of you are good at math, and some of you uh, are good at organization, and some of you are excellent at, at fixing things, and you each have inborn talents that are wonderful. You've learned skills through the course of your life in your career, in your hobbies, and all those are good. And all those are things that God can use. But here's what we as God's people have that non-Christians don't. 
We have spiritual gifts that we've been given. From the day Jesus came into our hearts and the Holy Spirit came into our lives, He endowed us with certain spiritual gifts. Now, what's a spiritual gift and how does it differ from a talent or a skill? Here's my definition. This is my definition, not from the Bible. Spiritual gift, in my definition, is an extraordinary ability to serve others in a way that draws people to Christ and helps them grow. It is an extraordinary ability to serve others in a way that draws people to Christ or helps them to grow. So it could be any number of things. Paul lists a number of gifts here. Some are teaching, some are giving, some are serving, some are exhorting, some are organizing or leading or, or doing acts of, of charity. There's all kinds of gifts and there are many more than are listed here. But you have one or more of those gifts. Every single one of you. I mean, it's the closest thing any of us is going to ever have to a superpower in real life. There are ways that you can serve. There are things that you can do for the sake of the kingdom of God by your spiritual gift that nobody else can do in exactly the way you can. I could try to substitute for you, but it would be like me being the substitute quarterback for one of the playoff teams today, right? It wouldn't work out well. You have to do it. You have that role because God gifted you for that role. So how do you find your gifts? I've been in churches that offer these spiritual gift inventories where you, you answer a series of multiple choice tests and being at the end, it tells you you have this gift. I'm not saying it's wrong to take those. And if you want to look them up online, just as a way of, of being exposed, more further exposure to the idea of spiritual gifts, there's no harm in that. I'm just saying don't trust that as the Word of God because it's not. The reason I don't use them, the reason we don't as a church use them is because I don't believe in them because they are a human instrument. They are made up by people. There's nothing scientific about them. How you find your gifts is not through answering 20 multiple choice questions. It's by coming to God and saying, Lord, I want to serve you. Please show me. Please show me what you created me to do. What did you call me to do? I want my life to be about serving you, so show me how. And then just start volunteering. And start volunteering for every opportunity you see in the church or out there in, this, in the world where you see needs and, and you try to fill them. And eventually you're going to find something that you can do like no one else can. You're going to find something that you, when you do it, you enjoy it so much, you do it even if it was against the law. And when you do it, you see it blessing other people's lives. It won't just be you. It'll be people coming to you and saying, man, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. You're blessing us. There, on, our, on our website, James talks all the time about the QR code. If you, if you log into the, our website through the, through the code or through, the, through your internet search bar, there's a tab that says get connected. When you click on it, there's a tab that pops up that says, one of the tabs says volunteer. If you click on that, that lists every opportunity we have as a church for you to volunteer for ministry right now. Just start serving. Find what you're good at. Find what God gifted you to do. Now, one more thing. Get over yourself. It's all about Jesus. Find your gifts so you can serve him. But number three, serve him with all your heart. It's great if, if every Christian knows their role, but do it to the best of your abilities. Now, here's, here's kind of a funny story. My, okay, let me back up, all right? So 
It's not so much true today, but when I was growing up and when, when some people in this room who were older than me were growing up, uh, churches, especially small to medium-sized churches, had what they called a parsonage. A parsonage was a, ch- a house that the church owned so their pastor could stay there for free. And that was how small to medium-sized churches could afford a full-time pastor. They couldn't pay him a living wage, but they said, okay, we'll pay you this much, plus you get a rent-free house, and he was able to make ends meet. All right? Y'all with me? So I had a good friend who, when she first got married many, many years ago, she told me about this, she and her husband bought their church's parsonage because their pastor had built his own house. They didn't need a parsonage anymore. So they bought the parsonage from the church. It was cheap. She said, you know what, Jeff? Never do that. Never buy a parsonage. Because here's what happens. Members of that church, if they have something go wrong in their house, they're going to call a professional, a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician. But when something goes wrong in the parsonage, they're going to say, eh, let's not spend any money. Deacon so-and-so has done that in the past. Let's send him over there. And so what you get is you get a house where nothing works quite right. And when you call a professional and, and you say, okay, uh, our cabinets don't close, and he'll, he'll come over, the carpenter will come over and go, who installed these? These aren't even the right doors for these cabinets. And then your toilet doesn't flush or something's gone wrong with your plumbing and the plumber comes over and says, "Um, did a drunk guy install the pipes in this house? And then your lights won't come on and you call the electrician and he says, "Um, I looked at that wiring. I don't know how this house hasn't burned down by now. And it's all because we have this attitude that says, you know, in my work, I'm going to give my all because otherwise I get fired. And my family, I mean... I'm going to do my best because I don't want them to hate me. And in my hobbies, that's what I'm passionate about. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. But when it comes to serving the Lord, you know, he should be glad I showed up. I'm not getting paid for this stuff. I mean, what, what do we think I am? After all, we hire professional ministers who went to seminary and got ordained and they're the ones that do the important work. Yeah, that's one of the devil's most successful lies is convincing ordinary Christians that they've got nothing to contribute. Convincing them that if anything important is going to happen, it's going to be because the guy with with the rev in front of his name makes it happen. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because I'll tell you the truth, you could have a, a supremely ungifted pastor and have a great church. That happens when God's people are using their gifts and serving with all their heart. So let me just be very specific. If you are one of the people, and I know some of you are in this room, who work with our children's ministry or our students, student ministry, you can be tempted to think, I'm just, I'm just keeping other people's kids for an hour. But understand something. You are working with human beings at the most uh, crucial stage of their lives, These days, sad to say, a lot of kids who grow up in church, when they get to be adults, they walk away and never come back. That's one of the crises of our age. But they found that of the the kids who grow up and become adults who go to church and and serve and, and follow the Lord the rest of their lives, the thing they have in common is they can name at least five adults outside their family who invested in them spiritually. Just adults who knew them by name, who who knew enough about their lives to be able to say, hey, how's your grandma I'm praying for? How did that algebra test go? Or, hey, I know your girlfriend broke up with you. How are you doing? Things like that. 
You can be one of those five people in the lives of dozens of kids. The one they look back on and say, I remember her. She cared about me. I remember him. He showed me what Jesus is all about. If you serve in one of our life groups as a director, as a care group leader, as a teacher, what you do on Sunday mornings is very important, but that's, that's not the whole thing. In essence, you get, to be a chance, you get a chance to be a pastor of a small group of people. You are the shepherd who, are, who is the one who has the most profound spiritual impact on their lives of anybody in this church. You have an opportunity to nurture them spiritually, to pray for them by name, to, to know what's going on in their lives and to, to help connect them to people when they're lonely, to, to meet their needs and, and make us aware of what's going on with them as well. You have a key role in the spiritual nurture of dozens of people. If you uh, serve in our homeless dinner uh, on Tuesday afternoons, or if you mentor school kids through our Project Mentor, uh, it's not ours, it's the city's, but if you work with our ESL ministry and teaching people to speak English, or if you adopt a teacher at Sam Houston Elementary, or any of our other ministries that, that reach outside the walls of the church, just understand the way you are shaping the way people think of Jesus. Not just the people you're ministering to, but the people they talk to, many of whom have been told that Christians don't care about them. And you're changing their minds and showing you, no, Jesus is about those who are hurting and lifting up the fallen. If you're on our worship team, or if you sing in the choir, or you play in the orchestra, you're not just a musician. You're someone who gets to escort us into the presence of God once a week, and that's a powerful thing. If you work in our tech team, uh, you're not just pushing buttons and, and dials and, and levers. You're, you're enabling dozens of people to hear the gospel every week and beaming it out through the internet to who knows how many. If you're a greeter, you're not just saying hello to people every Sunday. You're understanding that when a person comes into a church, it's been scientifically proven, by the way, most of them decide in the first 10 minutes whether they're ever coming back again. And that's long before they ever meet me or anybody on our staff most of the time. And what makes the difference is, do they feel like they matter? And it's not just the first-time guests. Every person who walks up those steps out there into this sanctuary, every one of them has been fighting some kind of battle this week. And if you show up at your post to greet and you're prayed up, God is going to show you that person needs a hug today. That person needs someone to ask them how they're doing. That person needs somebody to take them aside and just say, can I pray for you for just a few minutes? And you can be the person who makes the difference between someone making it through their next week and not. You can even be the person that helps someone understand, I need Jesus. I had a, a lady in a church where I pastored many years ago named Myrtle, and Myrtle passed away. And I'd always known her as a very faithful church member, a very kind and, and, and joyful person. But after she died, I found out that Myrtle was famous in our city. No one had ever told me this before. And this is a big city because for many years she had been the crossing guard at one of the elementary schools. And even though uh, you know, only a portion of the city sent their kids to that school, everybody in town knew Myrtle. And everybody knew you don't speed through Myrtle's intersection. So you have to picture this back in Myrtle's day, the crossing guards all wore uniforms. 
So here's this little lady, this plump little woman with white hair. It looks like a cop, right, with her, with her uniform on and a sign and a whistle, and she meant business. Everybody knew, right? I better slow down. Here comes Myrtle's intersection. And one day, a very nice, big, expensive car came flying through that intersection just as Myrtle was stepping off the curb with her sign, and she had to stop so she didn't get hit, but as the car went past, she whacked it with the sign. The car goes skidding to a stop, and this big guy gets out of the driver's side, stomps over and says, ma'am, do you realize that's the mayor's car? You've just damaged the, the car that belongs to the mayor of this city, and she said, let me tell you something, and she got in his face about his driving and about the kids that she was protecting and she didn't care who was in that car and, and he's starting to back off realizing, oh gosh, I'm in over my head. And then all of a sudden, the mayor himself gets out of the back seat and walks over and says, ma'am, ma'am, I'm sorry. You're right, we're wrong, we'll never do it again. That was Myrtle. And after she couldn't, could no longer serve as a crossing guard, she kept serving in our church. She sang in the choir every Sunday. She was incredibly faithful. So when I did her funeral, when I officiated her funeral, I talked about her faithfulness and how she chose always to serve with all of her heart because Jesus meant more to her than anything because he had died for her. And in that funeral, something happened that had never happened to me before. Somebody actually got saved at the funeral. We didn't have an invitation or anything. It's just afterwards, people were coming up to me, shaking hands, and one of the people who came up to me was this young woman I'd never seen before, and she said, you know what? I want what Myrtle had. And I knew immediately what she meant, and I said, do you, do you want to receive Christ today? She said, yes, I do. And so we stepped over to the side, and I prayed with her, and she accepted Jesus as her Savior, and we, we baptized her the next Sunday. So don't ever let the devil tell you that what you're doing is minor or unimportant or, or trivial because if you do whatever God has given you to do with all your heart in his name, you have no idea the life you're going to touch and how many people's lives you're going to touch. Now let me just address one more thing and then we're done. Some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, Jeff, but you don't know how busy my life is. You're putting all this guilt on me to contribute and, and serve and, and get involved. And I've got, man, I've got so much going on. I get it, really. This is, there's a reason why I never complain about the hours I work, because I know that some of you are juggling even more chainsaws than I am, right? So it's not, I'm not trying to tell you that it should be easy. I'm saying there's nothing more important I'm not saying that you do this because you're trying to impress God, you're trying to earn His favor. He already died for you before you ever lifted a finger. If you never do a single thing for the kingdom of God, that's still true. His grace is still amazing enough to save you. It's not about how the, the fact that we need help. We do if we're going to be the church we're called to be, but it's not about that. God's going to provide one way or another. It's not even about me wanting you to be better people. I do, and that's one way we grow as better people is by serving the Lord. What it comes down to is, if you believe in Jesus, you believe that he's a God who came to earth and gave everything. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't go halfway. He died in your place. He lost it all for you gladly for the joy that is set before him. So one of the best ways to love him in return is by simply loving his bride. Jesus isn't here anymore for us to, 
to show him physical acts of love and kindness. So the best thing we can do instead is love his bride who is left behind. And his bride is the church. Love the bride of Christ. Serve the bride of Christ. And you will bless the Savior himself.